Again, glad you guys are here. Uh, there's a couple of seats up here in the front if you uh, want to make your way up. One, two, three, four, five, six. About, there's some over here. This is me asking y'all to come sit down. <laughs> a couple of announcements. Um, we've got this opportunity at Marietta Middle School. It's a little... Uh, ambiguous at this point, but we were uh, approached by a lady uh, named Ashley who works with a group called Community in Schools. It's a nonprofit that's working with Marietta Middle, and she's looking to hook up some tutors with some students who need tutoring post-spring break, and we told her we would love the opportunity to do that. So she's still finalizing all of the details. So what we're trying to do is create a list of potential volunteers. This is Tuesdays and Thursdays from 2.30 to 4.30. You don't have to commit uh, to the entire time, but if you can be there on a Tuesday or a Thursday from 2.30 to 4.30, uh, you can sign up outside. Just write your name and your email or uh, talk, talk to Kim, and we can send Ashley our numbers, and then she's going to then go about trying to figure out how many students we can, uh, we can connect with. So it's a good opportunity to get into the schools. It's a good opportunity to help some kids who maybe need a little bit of help. So that's um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 2.30 to 4.30. Uh, and again, you don't have to be able to do all of those slots, just one or the other. Uh, you can sign up out front for that. As David mentioned, we'll have a good Friday service this Friday at 6.30. Encourage y'all to come to that. And then obviously next Sunday, Easter, we'll have a 7 and a 9 and an 11. Um, I imagine the, this service will be uh, relatively full. And so if you want to be guaranteed a little elbow room, you can come at 7. <laughs> we'll have donuts at 7. We won't have donuts at 11, if that helps. All right, uh, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, we're going to look, we're going to jump out of order in Matthew. We'll go to Matthew 21. It's a story in your Bible. It probably says the triumphal entry. So it's Jesus entering into Jerusalem. There's all of this celebration. It's the Sunday before his crucifixion on Friday. So this is uh, the last week of his life. It's called Palm Sunday because they cut down. In John, it talks about some people cutting down palm branches, and he rode in on those. So it's this very uh, upbeat kind of celebratory atmosphere. We'll start in verse 1. As they, that's Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So just the, the action is pretty straightforward. Uh, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a uh, donkey. There's, uh, it's the beginning of the Passover week, so there's a lot of pilgrims. In Jerusalem, maybe the population had doubled or even tripled in size. And it was customary for as pilgrims entered, for the people who were already in the city to celebrate their coming. So that's not necessarily unique to Jesus. The intensity is unique to him. That word stirring is actually used like of an upheaval with an earthquake. So it's, it's more than just this mild curiosity. There's a lot of excitement. Everybody was pretty amped up with Jesus um, coming in. So he rides in on a donkey and they make this big deal of him coming. And then you see that key question that we've been looking at over the past several weeks in Matthew 12 when we're talking about the, the controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he says, if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. Um, if you're not for me, you're against me. This idea of everything hinges on who we say he is. And Matthew puts that question in there. Who is this? Everything hinges on our answer to that question. And that the answer does have eternal implications. And you can see that even at the bottom of this or in the midst of this section as well, Matthew saying, and they're asking, who is this? 
who's coming in. So that's the action, again, pretty straightforward. The significance behind what Jesus is doing. He's making a claim to being a king. That's what he's doing. Uh, Throughout his ministry, there have been attempts to kind of force him to become king. And I think it's in John, he feeds 5,000. It says they were going to force him to become king. And he slipped through the crowds. And now he's actually saying, I'm the king. And he does it in several different ways. This whole idea, he sends two disciples to go get a donkey and bring it back to him. And he, he says, if the owners of it ask what you're doing, just say the Lord needs it. That's, that's stealing is what that is. It's not his donkey. If you go to your car after church and somebody's breaking into it and you say, what are you doing? And they say, don't worry, Jesus needs it. <laughs> Do you say, here are the keys? No, you call 911. That's against the law. You're, it's not their car. It's not his donkey unless he's the king. Then everything is his. And so there's a claim there, just in that simple act of saying, go get that thing that's not mine and bring it to me. And if anybody asks why you're doing it, tell them I need it. There's, this, uh, there's a custom where uh, dignitaries, royal dignitaries, if they were entering a city, they could get whatever animal they want to ride in. He's making a claim. The, he deliberately fulfills this prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9 that says, your king is coming riding on a colt. He could have entered Jerusalem any number of ways. We don't have any evidence from his three years of public ministry that he ever did anything like this, that he ever orchestrated his... He doesn't make an entrance ever. And yet he does here. And it's on purpose. He's deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, knowing the crowds are going to know that it's a Messianic prophecy, and he knows it's a Messianic prophecy, and he knows it's pointing to this fact that the king will come this way into this city. Even the... The, the idea of him riding in on a colt, that looks like what a king, a victorious king, how he would ride back into his city after um, some military triumph. All three of those strands point to the same reality. Jesus is saying, I'm the king. The people misunderstand. They say he's a prophet. They're moving in the right direction. They're still not quite there. But this idea that Jesus is the king, that's what he's saying by his actions. And so for us... If this most important question is, who is this? And at least in this story, the answer is the king. Jesus is the king. What does that mean for us? Who is this? Jesus, the king. For me, personally, I struggle a good bit trying to get my mind around what does it mean for Jesus to be my king. I I don't have any experience with monarchy. When I think king, I think Elvis. I don't think of somebody who's a... (laughs) ruler in any way. The Queen of England has no power. She's a figurehead. That doesn't help me at all to set for me. It's difficult for me to get my mind and heart around the fact that Jesus says he's my king. I don't know if that's difficult for you or not, but I thought of a couple of things, and there's, there's many uh, implications of saying Jesus is my king, but I thought of a couple for us this morning, and these, are come, from, these come from Psalm 24.1. That first song that we sang, that opening song is based on Psalm 24, one. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the water. So the idea is the king has a claim on everything within his kingdom. Everything within his sphere of authority he has a claim on. You see here David saying, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone who lives in it. Why? Because he made them. And so we have God, regardless of anyone's personal connection to Jesus, regardless of whether they've made a decision to follow him, David says God has a claim of ownership on everything and everyone, which that, that, that excludes nothing. He has a claim on everything and everyone simply because he has made them. Now for us, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you actually have a, he has a claim on you beyond that. There's a claim beyond just being your creator You've willingly submitted yourself to him. When you made a choice to follow Jesus, you didn't just get a savior, you also got a king. He says, follow me, and when you say, okay, you're submitting your will to his. You're making, I'm I'm saying, Jesus, you're my king, and I'm going to follow you. So what that means is then he has a claim on everything in my life. And I think there's a couple of different ways of looking at it as well. One, I would say, is personal, maybe you would call it internal is there anything here in me 
that he does not rule and reign over? Is there any part of me where he is not the king? You can think of time, money, um, attention, those types of things. Those are areas where we give some to God. I, I gave some money, and so sometimes we think that means, well, I can do whatever I want with the rest. Well, I had my quiet time this morning, and God got 10 or 15 or 30 minutes, and so that means my rest of my 23 and a half hours, I can do what I want. I was in corporate worship on Sunday, so God got my attention then, and the rest of my week, I can do what I want. It's not what it means to live under a, a, a king. The king gets 100%, not 10, or even half. He gets all. He has a claim on every second of my day. He has a claim on every dollar in my wallet. And he has a claim on every thought that runs through my mind. And for some of us, we're going, eh, too much. We rebel against that. And honestly, it's a battle of the wills, but ultimately it gets down to a lack of trust. If there's an area of your life where Jesus is not the king, I'll bet most likely it's rooted in the fact that you don't trust him to be the Lord and that you don't trust him to be the king in that area. And you may have reason for that some way or another. I don't know. But that most likely is what's going on. Some, for some reason, I can't trust God to be the king when it comes to my finances. I can't trust God to be the king when it comes to my future. I can't trust God to be the king when it comes to how I relate to my wife or my kids or my boyfriend or girlfriend. I can't trust God to be the king when it comes to how I spend my time. I just can't for whatever reason. And so we, we buck him on that. It becomes a battle of the wills. It's interesting to me that a lot of times when we buck him as the king, we actually never even take the time to ask him what he wants us to do. We just assume we wouldn't want to do it. We don't even ask. Give him a chance to be the king. If you wrestle with that, is it an issue of trust? Another way, I'm calling it socially. There's probably a better label for it. Corporately, there's this, uh, in the old, kind of Old Testament times, if a king conquered a land, he would set up a statue of himself in the land that he conquered to remind everybody who was in charge. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God he creates Adam and Eve in his image, and he plants them in the Garden of Eden. He says, y'all got authority over everything. That's what he's doing. He's setting up a statue of himself to say, hey, I'm in this is mine. I'm in charge of this. And each of you has been created in the image of God. If you're following Jesus, then his spirit lives within you, and he has planted you somewhere. Read Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. It's very clear. He says this to exiles, to Jews who are living in Babylon for just 70 years. He said, I want you... I want you to build houses. I want you to plant. I want you to marry. I want you to have children. I want you to seek the welfare of this place that I've planted you in. Because as it prospers, so will you. And so there's this idea that even though they're going to be there temporarily, even though it's this pagan kingdom, what God says is, I want you, I want you to fully live there. And he says the same thing to each of us. He's planted each of us somewhere. He's planted us somewhere relationally, for many of you, he's planted you somewhere professionally. For a large number of you, he's planted you somewhere in the community. And the question becomes, are you a statue? Are you a sign in those areas that points to the fact that, the, that Jesus is the king? Do you point to the fact that Jesus is the king at, I'm looking at Brian, at Brassfield and Gory? Do you point to the fact that Jesus is the king at Lassiter High School? Do you do that? Do you point to the fact that Jesus is the king at Westside, where you volunteer? Those are the, that's, that's for all of us. There's this idea, again, that God has placed us in a context, and what he wants to know is, are you representing me in that place? Whether the place that you are is explicitly Christian or not, it doesn't matter, because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, so there's nowhere that you are that is not his. And so he's planted you there as a sign as a statue to say, this is God's. When you work in a secular government, this is still God's. You work in a secular school, it's still God's. In your neighborhood, it's God. All of those things are his. And he wants to know, are you functioning that way? Again, socially is the word I'm using. There's probably a better term for that. In the community, are you a reflection of the fact that Jesus is the king over all the earth? Second thing I was thinking of, kings have a claim on everything. They own everything in their kingdom. And the second thing is kings fight for their people. Psalm 24, 8 
says, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. If you read through the Old Testament, God bends over backwards to make sure everybody knows he's the one that wins. We've talked about how he delivers the Jews out of captivity in Egypt. There's no armed uprising of Jewish slaves that overthrow the yoke of Egyptian oppression. Moses waves a staff and all these things happen. Frogs and flies and boils and darkness and hail. Then he steps in the water and the Red Sea parts and they walk across it. Then as soon as the Egyptians start walking across, the floodgates open and they get drowned. Nobody, no Jew is going to say, hey, I did that. That was my idea. They don't get any credit. In Joshua, the first city that God says, I want you to take this one in the promised land is Jericho. What does he tell them to do? What's the brilliant battle strategy? Walk around the walls and blow some trumpets. You want to hear that if you're a soldier? What are we going to do, boss? Well, we're going to walk around and we're going to blow these trumpets. Okay, then what are we going to do? We're going to go home and we're going to come back and do it the next day. Then what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go home and we're going to come back and do it the next day. And then on the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. And the walls are going to come down. What? Gideon starts with over 22,000 people. God explicitly says, too many. Let's whittle it down to 300 because I don't want any of y'all to boast in what you've done. And what are their weapons? A jar, a torch, and a trumpet. 300 against, it's, the Bible says that the camels of the Midianites are thicker than sand on the beach, much less the people. So you take 300 and you give them a jar and a torch and a trumpet and say, hey, we're going to go do this. It's ridiculous. But that's what God wants his people to know. I do the fighting. I win the battles. I'm the one that protects you. I'm the one that makes things happen. And so he has them wait on him. He has them do what looked to me to be ridiculous things. I don't think they're studying this at West Point. And I don't think that we would be thrilled if we knew this was our military strategy. If I don't know that we would be happy with that. But it's what they're doing. God wants everybody to know, I did this. I'm your deliverer. I'm your king. And the Bible sometimes calls him Lord of the angel armies. If you have a message translation, that's what it says. Or the NIV, I think it says the Lord of hosts. There are these armies of heaven. And God's saying, I'm the commander of that. And so if there's fighting to be done for my people, I'm going to do it. And I want all of you to know that. Same thing is true for us. Jesus fights our battles for us. Interesting, on the Sunday before he's crucified, he rides in this victory formation on this colt. He knows what he's going to do, and he knows he's going to win. Through the cross, he defeats sin and Satan and death, our three major enemies. He's defeated all three of them already for us, and he continues to fight battles on our behalf. I don't have any idea what that's going to look like for you. I know there's some component of waiting. If I read through the Old Testament, there's always this this waiting piece that's not passivity, it's trust. Rather than acting on my own, I'm going to give God a chance to fight. Again, we don't have political, military enemies that we're going against, so I don't know exactly what it's going to look like in your life, but there is this waiting slash trusting component, and then there will be an obedience component, and it will probably look silly if I read the Old Testament right. The things that God is going to ask you to do don't necessarily look like winning strategies because he doesn't want you to think that the reason you won was because you produced a winning strategy. He wants you to know he won for you. He fought the battle for you. This is sexist, but I'm going to... It's broad generalizations I think are halfway true at least. You can take it or leave it. Women, fighting for you is here for many of you. It's in your mind. That's where the battle is won and lost. And if you wrestle with despair, if you wrestle with depression, if you wrestle with fear, with anxiety, with worry, with those kinds of things, God wants to win the battle for you there in your mind. Guys, a lot of us, the battle is in our will in terms of what we're actually doing. Maybe because we don't think a lot, I don't know. But it seems for us, it has much more to do with what we're doing Am I going to allow God to fight the battles for me? Losing my temper. Am I going to let him, lack of self-control. What I say that's sarcastic or hurtful or whatever. Am I going to allow God to fight those battles for me in terms of my will? Strengthening my will to choose righteousness instead of 
impurity. That type of thing. That's what's on the table for us as Christians. You serve a Savior who's forgiven you of everything you have, will, and ever will do. But you also serve a king who wants to fight battles for you. Who wants you to live in freedom and in victory. And again, I wish I could give you steps and I can't because I don't know what they look like for the particular battle that you're facing. The, my encouragement to you is to hear clearly if Jesus is a king and he's saying in Matthew 21, I'm the king. Kings fight for their people. So let him fight for you doesn't mean that you'll have nothing to do. At some point, you'll need to cooperate with him. But he goes first, and he makes the, ba- the battle plan. And what he's going to ask for you is probably like blow a trumpet and walk around a wall. It's not that what he's looking for from us. It's not, it's not a congruent with the battle that he's fighting. Because he does all the work, and he wants us to know, hey, I did this, and I did this for you. Let's pray. God, I pray for us uh, as people, Lord, that we would live fully under your kingship. And we would trust you enough to submit our whole lives to you internally and socially. God, you've planted each man and woman in this room strategically somewhere. And God, I pray for each of us that we would know what does it look like to be a statue, to be a sign that says, Jesus owns this. This is God's turf. And we would know how to function that way. For some, even as I pray that, they're going, you don't have any idea where I am. And I don't. But you stuck them there. And so you do, and there's some way for them to function as a sign. And I pray that you begin to speak to them about those things. God, I pray for those of us who we we either have given up or we're striving, fighting our own battles. Lord, I pray that we would know what it is to trust you to fight on our behalf, to win the battle in our mind, to win the battle in our hearts, to win the battle of our wills. Jesus, we thank you that you're You're this gentle and humble king that we read about in Matthew. And you're also this ferocious king that we read about in Revelation 19. And God, there are times we need you to be both of those things to us. And we invite you to do that. God, the places where we need your gentle, humble meekness in our life, Lord, we we invite that. And the places where we need the sword coming out of your mouth. From Revelation 19, God, we invite that work as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, two parts, two things. One, uh, we're going we're gonna to sing a worship song. That first song that we sang, King of Glory, that's from Psalm 24. We're going to worship to that for, uh, just as a recognition of that Jesus is the King. And then after that, we're going to take communion. We'll have some guys up here with bread and juice. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion over there. And oftentimes communion can be kind of a solemn deal. We're reflecting on where we've missed it and asking for forgiveness, and that's good. But today what I want us to do is really take communion in more of a celebratory manner. I want you to recognize that there's been a victory that's been won for you. And as you're coming forward, if there are those areas of your life where you're, he's not the king, I want you coming forward saying, he is. I'm going to allow him to be the king In this area of my life, if you're wrestling with something as you come forward, I want you to recognize that you have a king who wants to go to war for you. And so let him. Uh, We'll have ministry teams up in the corner. We'll be happy to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. I'd encourage you to stop by, let us pray for you, and then Bo will dismiss us when we're done. So you guys can stand. We're going to worship, and then we'll have an usher walk by and tap you on the shoulder when it's time uh, for communion. Your gaze be lifted up 
Tell everyone how great the love The love come down from heaven's gate To kiss the earth with hope and grace Say, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty. Lift up your hands, be lifted up. Let the redeemed declare the love, and we bow down at heaven's gate. To kiss the feet of hope and grace And sing Who is this King of glory The Lord strong and mighty Who is this King of glory The Lord strong and mighty Holy, there is one Lord over everything. There is one King, He is Jesus, King of glory, strong and mighty. There is one God, He is holy. There is one Lord over everything. Jesus' blood 
and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in Jesus' name My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, thy anchor holds within the veil. Through the storm. 
deep as love is wide and it covers us as love is fierce as love is strong it's furious as love is sweet as love is wild and it's waking us to life let us believe that Love is deep, as love is wide, and it covers us. As love is fierce, as love is strong, it is furious. As love is deep, as love is wild, and it's waking us alive. of it. We want to see heaven displayed through our lives. The truths that we know in heaven, God, we want to see uh, spoken out and break out into the world around us.
Show me.